the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Although this is Father's Day, Jesus is speaking of his heavenly Father, the Father of all fathers, the Father of all human beings. Now this is the green season. You can see it, ordinary time, which means numbered time. We're in Trinity season, but don't let that fool you. The third person of the Trinity has been with us all along, and that's the Holy Spirit. And just as the second person of the Trinity looks to the Father to see whatever the Father is doing, and so to do that, so the Holy Spirit focuses us on Jesus, who is looking to the Father. So, we're in Holy Spirit time, and as our text reminds us, Holy Spirit time can be turbulent times, times of trial, times of suffering, as well as times of triumph. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now that's a promise that Jesus is making. And apart from being a warning about bringing secular celebrations into the sacred lectionary, it's a reminder that when we father, follow our Father in the Spirit, following the commands, the instructions, the exhortations of the Son, it's not a guarantee that we're being led to a place of universal affirmation. You will be hated, he says, by all for proclaiming a message of love. You will be hated and pursued and prosecuted. When you are prosecuted, he tells his disciples, not if, when, when you are hauled in front of the magistrate or even into the court of public opinion, don't go on the defensive. Remember, he says, it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father, the Holy Spirit, who will speak through you. And if there's one thing we know right from the get-go is that when we're on the defensive, the Holy Spirit doesn't get a word in edgewise. Now, He's also saying, don't think then that you can make a better defense by preparing your script in advance. Away from the heat of the moment, let's rehearse everything we're going to say, parsing our words, working out everything so as to give the least offense, hopefully, or going on the offensive, if that's our tactic, boldly blustering our way through the defenses that our opponents are throwing in our path. No, just trust. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, and not a minute before. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Plenty of people tell me when they hear the spirit of my earthly father speaking through me, and it's not pretty. 
The truth is, I don't know which we modern-day Americans fear the most. Being at the mercy of adverse circumstances around us or being at the mercy of all those forces that work within us over which we have no control, even the most benevolent Heavenly Father you can imagine. We want neither. We want to be in control of what goes on inside us and outside us. And if we stumbled into trouble or wandered into a place we shouldn't be, we want out, or at least some nice clear instructions from the pulpit, preferably, as to the nearest exit. That's not on Jesus' agenda as he gives his words of advice. Don't act, Jesus says, and for heaven's sake, don't react. Wait, wait, and as you're waiting, listen hard for that inner voice, that voice which you somehow forgot to listen to, which means to listen to, to hear that still small voice amid the mutterings and murmurings of the crowd around us, and the mutterings and murmurings that crowd within us try to use to crowd out the Spirit's witness. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, utterly defenseless. So be wise as servants and innocent as doves. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Endures. We've heard this already from Paul. We rejoice in hope, he says, which means we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Endurance, the ability to hang in and hang on, the capacity of bearing up under difficult circumstances, putting up with every conceivable hardship or adversity or suffering, suffering in silence. Couldn't you send us somewhere else, Lord? We'll try our luck in some other town, we're inclined to say. But we know the answer already. So we seek to straddle that tightrope between wisdom and innocence, balancing the beam that binds the wisdom of serpents and the innocence of doves into one. We need both to go into this world and do what the Lord has called us to fulfill his purpose. Because when he says the one who endures to the end will be saved, he does not mean the end of our suffering when we shall all be raptured out of here, God willing. He does not mean the end of our rope when we cannot go another step and are ready to bail out. By end, he means the end, as in it is finished. Tetelestai, as in telos, our Lord's last word on the cross, indicating that the work he came to do is done. The goal has been reached. His life's task is complete with perfection. And now our work is only beginning, in other words. This is not about eschatology, the end times. This is about teleology, the goal to which all our times are set, the goal which we are to achieve as best we can. And so this is not about hunkering down and laying low and staying out of sight, blending in with the crowd so that our affirmative message will be heard to maximum effect in perfect agreement with all around us all the while waiting that we run into no trouble until all this is over? No, this is about going out there and making ourselves noticed, making a difference by daring to be different. 
demonstrating with all that's in us, not just that Jesus is a better way, not just that Jesus is the best way, but that Jesus is the only way. We realize that we face this tribunal every day as well, every day within ourselves, as we see to free ourselves not only of the worst that this world offers, but also of the best. Our battle isn't against everyday garden variety sins. Our battle is against selling out to this world's ideals, this world's goals, and not holding out for something better. Affirmation, of course, is what we want. Affirmation, which our dog gives us. We've been away for too long. He doesn't run back to us and say, why did you put me in that blasted kennel? He jumps all over us and licks us. He says, I love you no matter what you've done. Well, Jesus is offering us that kind of love. But the affirmation that says, whatever we do, it's just fine. Hey, nobody's perfect, is not love. And love, the love that Jesus offers, requires something else. It requires a little honesty. Finding a way to say to your dog, I'm sorry, it's the best we could do. I won't do it again if he'll believe you. Acknowledge and accepting the worst within us, then and only then, looking to God for the best. Looking to hear his voice, the shepherd's voice, only when all the other voices of all the last sheep, lost sheep bleating and bawling around us, have been silenced. How do we win out God's best from our best? By suffering. Suffering especially for things we haven't done. Suffering unjustly. Suffering for things that have been done to us that we don't feel we deserve. If you're operating on a program of affirmation, you're also functioning with a program of entitlement. I deserve the best. I don't deserve this, God. And when I get what's coming to me, it's going to be very good indeed. I'll say I'm sorry when I've actually done something wrong and not until. But when we begin to suffer for things that have been done to us unjustly, that's when we see the best that this world offers us collapse like the pack of cards that it is. And that's when we see the extent to which our highest hopes and fondest dreams have really been invested in this world, not in the kingdom of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We're not advocating stoicism here either, hanging in head down as the world lashes out at us. There's more than that. Suffering brings about endurance, not a way out of suffering, but a way through. And it's an endurance which means not just holding on or even holding out, but holding up, upholding the hope that we have been given, a hope that lies more deeply in embedded in our souls than anything else. And the hope of that hope allows endurance to become more than mere stoicism, but a real act of faith, not just grinning and bearing, but a joyful expectation of the best coming to be by and by. And endurance produces character. I don't even know what the word character means anymore. <laughs> I think it's an empty concept in our time and in our culture, which is going to need some redevelopment. 
The word that we're given for character, dokimens, is really means bringing about the test of character. The test which shows whether you have character or not. Whether you have the real thing or you're just saying you do. Whether we're just managing our persona, our mask, our self-image, or whether under that is something real. Is this a real vocation, this hope of the joy to which we're called? Or have we settled for something else, something less for which we'd settle right now, if it could allay the suffering? I'll tell you one thing. Having the privileges we have doesn't remove us from suffering, but it sure allows us to mask them. It sure allows us the kind of anesthetic which allows them to coexist with the causes of suffering that we have. Do we really want God's glory? In other words, after all, and above all, that's what we're given hope of, God's glory, not our own. Or do we really want our own, or whatever we can salvage of our own glory when push comes to shove? Well, the salvage operation, which is Jesus' project in our lives, is not directed to what we consider worthwhile but to what he values and to what he loves. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Jesus is not looking, not searching us, not scouring our history for every good thing we have managed to do, promising to love us to the extent that he can affirm what is lovely about us. Every award we've ever received, every degree we have ever earned, he's not looking to retrieve some treasury of merit from the sludge at the bottom of our souls. He isn't looking for strengths or for signs of strengths. God's love is creative. He loves the unlovely, loves them into loveliness, loves them into loving, loves them into life. For while we were still weak, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to get our act together. He'd be waiting still. He loves us first, then brings us to life, then schools our heart to love what he loves and what, what he wants. And he is asking us to do the same, to love as he loves, who he loves, to love not just the lovely, the smart, the successful, the ones just like us, or so we wish. He is inviting us to love the unlovely, the ones this world wants to leave behind. Can we do that? Can we find the words and the actions that will set us free to love? No. But the Spirit can, and the Spirit will. And whether through hope or through the suffering that leads to hope, that Spirit will see that we are given the chance, and for that, that we take the chance to step out of our zones of comfort, of security, and trust that in Christ we can go from liking those that are just like us to loving those that are not. Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you. And when we receive those words, let us be the ones to dare to proclaim God's love to the unlovely, 
in word and in deed to those who seem to us least deserving of that love. Even if that means maybe even to ourselves. Amen. Please stand.